Uh, last month, in a, the conference known as the Nordic Conference, with the messages spoken from California to the dear saints in the Nordic countries and the Baltic countries and elsewhere, the main thought and burden were on the consummation of the age. What is that? And the Lord's parousia, how is that related? That is his coming. How is that related to the consummation of the age? And I shared some basic truth concerning the consummation of the age and the parousia, the coming of the Lord, in order to open the way to consider various aspects of our life as believers, what the Lord wants to accomplish in the remaining length of time of this age, how we should prepare for his coming, things along that line. And as I was opening to the Lord and waiting on the Lord for his leading concerning the UK Blending Conference, Eventually, I had the inner sense to develop in certain ways what I shared in the Nordic Conference. So our general subject is quite simple. Living a Christian life at the end of the present age. The present age, which is known usually as the age of grace, is the age of the church. And according to Revelation chapter 10, verse 7, is the age of mystery, the great mystery, Christ and the church. And this age has been in existence for close to 2,000 years. Now, when will this age end? Well, we have clear prophecies, especially in the book of Daniel, chapter 9, concerning this. I'm referring to his speaking regarding the 70 weeks with a week signifying seven years. And you need to can study the life study of Daniel or the crystallization study of Daniel to get the details. But the first 69 weeks were completed with the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus. Then a new age started, the present age, the age of the church. So this age is actually a gap between the end of the 69th week, the time of Christ's crucifixion, and the age of the kingdom, the age of righteousness. 
So we need to be very careful, although there may be a growing sense that the Lord's coming is near, some say even imminent. We need to understand the prophetic word and according to Second Peter 1.19, take heed to it until the day star arises in our hearts, until there's an inner seeing. What needs to happen is this. The 70th week, which will be the last seven years of this age, will begin when the nation of Israel makes an agreement or a covenant with an exceedingly powerful European leader, the man who will eventually be Antichrist. And that agreement will enable the temple to be rebuilt in the proper location in Jerusalem. And that agreement made in time marks the beginning of the 70th week, seven years. And those seven years, according to the word, are divided in half, three and a half each. And at the end of the three and a half years, something marvelous will take place. The living overcomers, the first fruit, they're called, will be raptured directly to the heavens to appear before the Son of Man on the throne and be presented to God the Father for his satisfaction. Then shortly after that, the Antichrist will be manifested. He will take a place in the temple and demand to be worshipped as God. That will start the last three and a half years, the period of the Great Tribulation, those last three and a half years denote what is meant by the expression the consummation of the age. The consummation of the age is the last three and a half years of the 70th week of Daniel. The countdown for these seven years, I repeat, begins when the prophecy concerning the covenant between Israel and a leader in Europe takes place. Then all the living believers who are enlightened by the prophetic word, they will know three and a half years, then the rapture of the first fruits then the beginning of the Great Tribulation. When the consummation of the age begins, at the start of the 
last three and a half years, the Lord's parousia, that means presence, his gradual presence from the highest heaven to the earth with his overcomers starts. And so when I speak in the title of the end of the present age, I have in mind two things. One is a kind of general realization that the present age is approaching the end. But the second meaning, it's refer, meaning it's referring to the actual consummation of the age. Okay, a few more words because we need a foundation here. I know some most dear and faithful serving brothers who have been studying prophecies and really truly think they know the year of the Lord's coming. I don't know if they mean his secret coming or his open coming. I'd rather not mention the year that was openly mentioned sometime, at one time. My point is, I don't see anything in the New Testament charging us to study in this way. I'm not aware of anything in Brother Lee's ministry uh, urging us to study to try to figure out the year of his coming. Rather, the New Testament and the ministry of the age are focused on God's economy being carried out in this age, the church being built up, the bride being prepared, the overcomers being produced. And so I leave that kind of study for those who have the interest or the inclination or the feeling to do it. Now, another matter is because of the world situation under which we all are suffering, with the pandemic and all the effects on our living, on government, on the economy, on all matters of things. And sadly, the United States may take, be taking the lead in this. Not only the illness and the deaths but the lawlessness, the rebellion, the violence. So a number of dear saints have expressed their inner sense. The Lord may be coming soon. I believe it's healthy to have this sense. It awakens us. It sobers us. It motivates us. But we have to know when to stop. The world situation is not at the point where Israel is about to make this covenant. The location for rebuilding the temple has not been reclaimed yet. 
But that could happen in a very short period of time. Now, having said all of this, I want to open my being to share the burden in its various aspects within me. We, the believers, the Bible calls us children of the light. We are of the day. We were once darkness. Now we are light in the world. We are living contrary to the whole world system and the tide of this age. And in the Lord's recovery, we are here to carry out his economy, to fulfill his word, I will build my church. That's the universal organic body of Christ expressed as local churches. And when we have the realization that the end of this age and eventually the consummation of the age are drawing near, this should have quite a significant effect on our Christian life. How can we go on routinely, almost in a formal way, in our own life with the Lord or in our meeting life? We need to realize we are very likely at a critical time in the history of the earth, in the history of humanity on the earth. So I will try to share some points in these four messages on living a Christian life at the end of the present age. And this subject is based upon a couple things. One is, the present age will end. Another thought is, the end surely is much ne nearer now than when I was a young man. And that this should alert us, should awaken us, and make us watchful and diligent because the growth in life to maturity requires a certain amount of time. Learning to live an overcoming life requires training and discipline from the Lord. We want to carry out the God-ordained way to build up the body of Christ. We need to fulfill the commission to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom throughout the inhabited earth. And so it's healthy, and I believe also necessary, to reconsider certain aspects of the Christian life lived with an increasing expectation that we're, the end is drawing near. And surely, brothers and sisters, we don't want to be taken by surprise and not be ready. When the Lord said two women were grinding, two women were grinding at grinding, one taken and the other left, 
Two men were in the field working on their jobs, one taken and the other left. They're all believers, but one of the sisters and one of the brothers, they were inwardly ready to be taken up with the first fruits. They were living a normal, practical human life outwardly. But inwardly, intrinsically, organically, spiritually, they were living with an alertness, with an awareness, with a longing for the Lord to come. So we come now to the subject of message one, a Christian life under the government of God. It's almost one full year ago when, mainly in preparation for the December training, which was on Deuteronomy, I began to study and restudy the New Testament teaching and the ministry of Brother Nee and Brother Lee concerning the government of God. Then, as you may recall, at least three of the outlines in the December training were very much devoted to knowing the government of God, living under the government of God, along this line. As you know, I was not able to release messages during that time. But afterwards, I, and sometimes by myself, more often with other co-workers, have given a number of conferences in the last six months on the government of God. And we need to learn from our brother Peter, who is unique. He only wrote two epistles, only eight chapters as we understand the structure. But he wrote something that no one else covered. And before I mention more about First and Second Peter, I'd like to point out this. We all know at the end of John 21, when the Lord fed breakfast to the disciples who had tried fishing all night and caught nothing, the Lord asked Peter again three times, Do you love me? Lord, I love you. Feed my lambs. Shepherd my sheep. Feed my sheep. During that exchange, the Lord's heavenly ministry with its shepherding aspect was incorporated with the new covenant ministry so that the Lord's shepherding in the heavens will be expressed through our shepherding in the body on earth. 
And without question, that left a deep, permanent impression on Peter's being. Then toward the end of 1 Peter, the epistle, in chapter 5, he speaks some direct words to the elders. And he said, I also am an elder, which he was. And then he charged them, shepherd God's flock, shepherd them. By putting John 21 together with 1 Peter 5 concerning shepherding, And realizing that Peter's burden in these two epistles concerning it concerns the Christian life under the government of God and the divine provision for living under the divine government. While Peter is speaking very directly related to God's government as is being experienced through the suffering saints. Our brother Peter was shepherding. He uttered some very weighty words that we need to pay much attention to. For example, judgment begins at the household of God God's government is carried out by his righteous judgment. This is not the government at the the throne for the kingdom. The Son of Man will be the judge. And that is not the judgment at the great white throne. The Son of Man will judge the living and the dead. But this is God as the creator judging persons and things and matters in the creation that are contrary to his nature, that are against his economy, they are opposed to his will. And he begins with the church, the household of God. And he must and will judge us personally and corporately in order to purify his testimony. Then the judgment, the governmental judgment, will expand outward. This is somewhat parallel to the Old Testament where God first, once Israel had been established, and they became idolatrous. He judged Israel severely. Then he judged the nations even more severely. So as we approach this matter of the government of God, as presented to us by our brother Peter, we need to see a few things clearly that this is not the final judgment at the end of this age or the end of the kingdom age. 
This is God as the creator, judging what he chooses to judge in his creation. So Peter even told the saints to commit your souls to a faithful creator. Remember what the Lord said to Mary and John 20, I ascend to my father and your father, to my God and your God. As regenerated children of God, God is our father. But as creatures who are physically still in the old creation, God is God to us. And it is as God, even if he is also God the Father, that is judging righteously with the goal of having a universe, a new heaven and a new earth, filled with righteousness. And as he is applying his governmental discipline, again, this is from 1 Peter, to his people, he is supplying them with grace. Christ is the shepherd of their souls. He is caring for them. So we should not separate the righteous governmental judgment of God from his shepherding care, from his graciousness, from our ability to love and believe in the one whom we have not seen, the one who is under Christ's shepherding of our soul. So there's a provision, especially revealed in Second Peter, for our living under the divine government. Now we are at an, an, the end of the age when before too long, only the Lord knows the length, when, he revel, when Revelation 11.15 will be fulfilled. Now the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Before that can happen openly, manifestly, over the whole earth, the Lord must have among his people and in the churches those who are living as Christ lived, properly under the government of God. Because these kinds of believers will be those eventually who will become the dispensational instrument to turn the age. Let me put it this way, maybe more directly. If we are not trained and supplied to live our Christian life under the government of God, we will not be ready for the consummation of the age to start. 
we will not be matured. We will not be qualified to be in the rapture of the first fruits. We will need to remain on earth for three and a half more years to be perfected during the hour of trial, during the Great Tribulation, especially that's in the Middle East and Europe. So this is not a theory. We're not rehashing the life study or crystallization study of First and Second Peter. We want to learn from the Lord's Word what it is to live a Christian life at the end of the present age with an awareness a tremendous dispensational change soon will be on the horizon. And we want to be ready. We want to be those in the midst of the darkness are alert and awake and are watching for the morning star. So now we come to the outline itself. One, the epistles of First and Second Peter are on the universal government of God. Surely Peter is an example of governmental discipline directly from the Lord. Even through Paul, remember the confrontation among the Galatians and Peter stopped eating with the Gentiles when some close to James in Jerusalem came and Paul rebuked him for not being faithful to the truth of the gospel. He really knew what it was to experience the governmental discipline of God and he really knew how to present this truth and how to care for the saints whose sufferings and other experiences are taking place under the purifying government of God. A. God governs by judging. The judgment of God is for the carrying out of his government. Now by the Lord's mercy, we are in his recovery. The Lord who has eyes like flaming fire and his eyes are everywhere. He knows everything, every matter, every one, every kind of action within the realm of the Lord's recovery that is contrary to God, his way, his nature. Also contrary to principles of the body, the oneness, the fellowship, the blending. So we should be somewhat ready and not astounded and not shocked because judgment begins at the household of God and by being on the ground of oneness as genuine local churches, we are, in practicality, the household of God 
and he governs by judging. I can testify personally. I have needed, I have received, and I am thankful for the righteous judgment of God in my life. I have to worship him. Thank you, Lord, for not leaving me here, for delivering me. Thank you for the grace that accompanied your judgment. How I praise you as my God. So what I'm sharing with you is not theory. It's not doctrine. It's real. One, because first and Peter, first and second Peter are concerned with the government of God. In these epistles, the judgment of God and of the Lord is referred to repeatedly as one of the essential items. Just look at all those verses that merit our prayer reading. Two, through various kinds of judgments, the Lord will clear up the entire universe and purify it so that he may have a new heaven and a new earth for a new universe filled with his righteousness for his delight. So he begins with the church. Then it will expand eventually. It will reach the limits of the universe. Then there will be a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And every unrighteous thing will be in the lake of fire. And all those in the new Jerusalem, all those on the new earth, will live in the realm of righteousness. Looking at this in a, in a kind of a smaller way in the United States, with a few hundred churches here, how much is taking place in our government, in the media, in certain cities that merits the present, immediate, righteous judgment of God? The attacking and killing police officers, arson, looting, rioting, rebelling, lawlessness, and we should pray for this, but we should pray realizing, Lord, you may need to judge your recovery in this country first, to purge, to purify, to cleanse, to prepare an instrument that matches your nature and character. So point B says, the judgment in 1 Peter 1.17, which is carried out by the Father, is not the future judgment, but is the present daily judgment of God's governmental dealings with his children. 
please, dear ones, in the morning when you're with the Lord, don't start the day by saying, well, what will be the next judgment on me? Leave that to God. Rather, seek the Lord, love the Lord, turn your heart to the Lord, open your being to the Lord, exercise your spirit to be one, receive his dispensing. But if in the course of a day or a longer period of time, a certain action takes place of judgment, then let's be humbled under the mighty hand of God and accept it. And we will be supplied with grace, we will be blessed, and we will be perfected. One, the Father has regenerated us to produce a holy family, a holy Father with holy children. As holy children, we should walk in a manner of life, a holy manner of life. Otherwise, in his government, God the Father will become the judge and will deal with our unholiness. So this applies without partiality to any of us, to all of us. It's better to have a judge now than at the throne of, at the judgment seat of Christ. And we should just honor God as God and recognize there's not only grace, there's government. And we are under the only true righteous government in the whole universe. So as holy children, we should walk in a holy manner of life. I mentioned this. God will deal with it. How he does, when he does, that's up to him. C. The disciplinary judgment in the government of God begins from the house of God. God judges everything that does not match his government. Whether it's in the work, the ministry, any of the churches, in the trainings, in the conferences, whether it involves the leadership, whatever it is. He judges anything that does not match his government. Therefore, in this age, we, the children of God, are under the daily judgment of God. This is our situation. This is an aspect of being in the church life in the Lord's recovery. We cannot be selective regarding the church life. We're in the house of God. We're in the kingdom of God. We're in the household of the faith. We're the Israel of God. We're a new creation. And as children of God, we are under his daily 
judgment. Sometimes his judge, judgment may be a, a direct word. Or it may be a certain action to enlighten us. That's up to him. Two, God uses fiery ordeals to deal with the believers in the judgment of his governmental administration, which begins from his own house. Peter knew so many saints, especially the Jewish believers. He was an apostle to the Jews. He knew there was suffering throughout what he called the brotherhood everywhere. But he didn't comfort them with natural pity. Actually, he would say, what you're experiencing is an application of God's judgment. Be humbled. Receive it. And you will gain him. He will gain you. Three, the purpose of this judgment is that we would live according to God in spirit. That's the purpose of it. The, the purpose is positive. In principle, the way wise parents discipline and train their children is so that they would live a proper, normal human life. They'd be so happy to see their daughters and sons. They'd just be proper human beings, respectful, honorable, moral, ethical. So the discipline is very positive. It's actually an expression of love. It's the same with our God. We know from Hebrews 12, God disciplines those whom he loves. As you may know, in the, the section on the third stage of the experience of life in the book by that title, there's the dealing with the flesh, the self, the natural constitution, dealing with the spirit. But then there is the discipline of the Holy Spirit. And Jacob is a picture of this. How did he move inwardly from being Jacob, the clever one, to being Israel, to being the Israel of God? It was by a life of crises and processes. The crises especially were judgments, were dealings of one kind after another. Even after he suffered the, love of, suffered the loss of Rachel, the love of his life, and buried her. He was transformed, but not mature. So the Lord disciplined him through the loss of, of his son Joseph. This is our wise God. Now, Roman 2, we turn now to the direction that will supply us and enlighten us and equip us 
for living a Christian life under the government of God. And we begin with our Lord Jesus. When the Lord Jesus was on earth, he lived a human life that was absolutely under the government of God. And he committed everything related to him to God's government. So in 1 Peter 2, 21 and 23, I encourage you to read when you have opportunity. We have a presentation of the Lord. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. He was blasphemed, slandered. They called him really Beelzebub. They said he had a demon. He didn't react. He didn't curse back. Rather, he committed everything to the one who judges righteously. He didn't avenge himself. He didn't defend himself in a selfish way. And this Christ is in us. He wants to live under the government of God in us. The same as he lived under the government of God when he was a man on the earth as the son of man. We need to know Christ appreciate and treasure Christ and learn to live this way. Those who will be co-kings, those who will be the overcomers and the first fruits, they will not be cursing others when they are cursed. When evil things are circulated about them, lying things in various ways, they will not go online or do things to attack, to defend. Rather, they will commit everything to the God who judges righteously. Some of the brothers, and I'm among them, we're aware, we don't go looking for it, but we're aware of all manner of reviling, evil, lying, disrespectful things are uttered. I can testify. This is not a boast. It's a testimony to the Lord's reality. As soon as I hear, I'm not bothered. I bring it to the one who judges righteously. Matthew 12. Every unprofitable word will be judged. By our words we will be justified or by our words we will be condemned. If we know there is such a government and if we know Christ in his living under the government of God and if we allow him to not only be in us but to live in us, he will train us to live this way effortlessly. Lord God, I give this to you. You know who the person is. 
This is a false name on this email. No human being has this name. You know who they are, where they are. I'm not going to hunt them down, try to attack back. I leave this to you. I just want to enjoy you, grow in you, be built up with other members of the body. You're the one with the government. I leave this to you. So simple, peaceful, and restful. A, the Lord kept committing all his insults and injuries to him who judges righteously in his government, the righteous God to whom he submitted himself. He put his trust in this righteous one, recognizing his government. So as the Lord in Ephesians 2 was a pattern of obedience. He was obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, and now lives this kind of life of obedience again in us. We now, in 1 Peter 2, see Christ as a pattern of living under the government of God, committing himself to God in every aspect of his life, committing all the insults and injuries to the one who judges righteously. And this is how we all need to live. This is an aspect of living at the end of the age, living with the consummation of the age in view. So whatever happens, in some of the riots in Portland, the anarchists are burning Bibles. Several weeks ago, the meeting hall in Atlanta was set on fire. This is a sign of the rebellion against God. It's not going to decrease. So when these attacks come, we refer them to the one who judges righteously. Don't trust in your ability to avenge. Remember the word, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. B, when God counseled Christ as a man, Christ's inward parts were one with God and instructed him through his contact with God. This is rather mysterious, but it's in the word, and the Lord will guide us into this aspect of the Christian life. The Lord governed, God governed the Lord Jesus primarily through his inward parts, through the tender elements of his inner being. He just guided him. He counseled him. Because the Lord in his inward parts was one with the Lord. Paul reached the point when he wrote Philippians 
where he could say, I long after you all in the inward parts of Christ Jesus. Here is a man whose inward parts were devilish. He wanted to destroy the church and kill the believers. But he was dynamically saved, born of God, disciplined and trained under the government of God, became a reproduction of Christ as a pattern to all those who would believe. And we need to learn how to let the Lord lead us inwardly, tenderly, yet firmly, and definitely. This is how he's governing. Yes, when we are contrary to him, he must deal with us more outwardly. But inwardly, when we're living under his government, it's so peaceful, it's so pleasant. He guides us through our inward parts. Now the last section is about us. As believers in Christ and children of God, we should live a Christian life under the government of God. If I were to not only visit the UK, but decide to and was given the the permission to live there, I can't live as if I'm under the government of the USA. I am under the government of the country that I'm in. And those of us who have been traveling when it was, were able to fly around, that probably will resume in some way. In whatever country we're in, we respect the government of that country. If I'm in China, I honor and respect the government in China or in Russia or in Japan or anywhere. Well, we need to know we're in the kingdom of God and we are under the government of God. So we need to learn. This involves shepherding, the experience and enjoyment of Christ, growing in life, training through discipline, to live. Not just behave now and then, to live under the government of God. And here we have three points. A. We should be humbled under the mighty hand of God, which carries out the government of God. So First Peter 5, 6 says, Be humbled under the mighty hand of God, and in due time he will exalt you. And Brother Lee, he coined this expression of active-passive. Passive, when a verb is passive, that means we're not doing anything. The action is being performed upon us by another person or force or power. 
But when we're active, we are making a choice and we are living and behaving in a certain way. So B is active. Humbled is passive. We shouldn't just passively be humbled. There needs to be an agreement, an acceptance, a willingness. This is what God needs to do with me. He wants to humble me in a particular way. Lord, I will be humbled. I will not resist. I will not protest. I will not pity myself. I will not cry out in a religious way. I sense your hand. I will not resist your mighty hand. Then the humbling takes place. Then the government of God in that particular matter will be carried out. Subpoints one in verse six the mighty hand of God refers to God's administrating hand, seen especially in his judgment. So if Something happens, not only with us and to us, but in us, that the righteous God is judging some aspect of our being or living, whatever, we should be humbled and receive this. Two says, to be humbled under God's mighty hand is to be made humble by God. So really only God can make us humble. If we try to humble ourselves, it will be false. It will be self-effort. It won't stand the test. However, we must cooperate with God's operation and be willing to be made humble, lowly, under his mighty hand. So I would ask a question, but as someone on the same level as everyone else, I'm not asking from some kind of higher position. I don't have that. I don't want that. I would just ask as brother to brother and brother to sister, are you willing to be made humble? Are you willing to be made lowly under God's mighty hand? Only the enlightening of God who is light can show any one of us in what things and what matters, in what aspects of our disposition. It may be in the ways we work. 
and the way we relate to others. Who knows? He knows. But when he takes action, and we sense it inwardly, because our inward parts are involved, we need to be willing. It is God's intention to humble me. It's very unwise to resist God's mighty hand. We shouldn't be afraid of being lowly. We should fear being exalted, being proud in any way, being self-sufficient in any way. This is a care for us. We may not recognize it. Because our concept is everything should be nice and tender and cherishing and soft. But we are under God's government. We are creatures in the old creation. Various things are contrary to his nature. He must be true to his nature and to his righteousness. B, we should commit our souls to the faithful creator. So we say faithful creator because it is God the creator who is judging aspects of the old creation. Persons, matters, things. And our soul in in particular is involved. And it's our soul that is receiving the discipline. It's our soul that is being purified, renewed, sanctified, transformed. So we should commit when we are in difficult situations. And always in the churches throughout the earth, there are dear saints in various kinds of difficult situations, painful, heartbreaking, inexplicable. We can't explain it. We don't understand what's happening. We need to commit our souls to the Creator. One, God can preserve our soul and His loving and faithful care accompanies His justice in his governmental administration. Don't you just love this? This is, of course, adapted from and applied from the ministry. Only God can preserve our soul. We shouldn't try to preserve it ourselves. We shouldn't just try to tough it out through this pandemic and through all the complications related to it. Just try to be strong and endure, and then be proud that we toughed it out. Let's ask God to preserve our soul, and we will see something amazing. His loving and faithful care accompanying his righteous judgment. It's like a father disciplining a child with tears. He must discipline, but the love and the tender care accompany the discipline. 
This is our God. Two, while God judges us in his government, he cares for us faithfully in his love. And I believe as time goes by, the need for more testimonies from the saints concerning this will be fulfilled. For someone to be able to not describe in detail what happened, telling story after story, but just referring to it and then testifying. In that situation, God cared for me faithfully in his love. This is our God. As we are suffering his disciplinary judgment, we should commit our souls to the faithful care of our Creator. Let's do this. This should be our living. This is the way we need to live at the end of the age. We do not know what is ahead, what the recovery as a whole will go through, what churches and saints in different situations will go through, what will happen in different countries and cities that will affect us, what will happen in our family life and personal life. Only God knows. But we should know this and be assured as we're suffering. Governmental dealings, that's right. Don't take it as punishment, really, but as governmental discipline. There is loving care, faithful care. When we realize this, we can just say, Lord, I abandon my whole being to you. I don't know what I need. I don't know where I am. I really don't know how to take care of myself. Now at the age I'm in, I'm thinking and feeling things like this. Different from when I was young. Lord, I give my soul to you. You preserve me. You care for me. You are my God. I'm your creature. You are my father. I'm your child. I commit my soul to you. Then now the last section, in about seven minutes or so, I'm going to aim mainly for about 75 minutes for each message. So now we're in point C with the subpoints. In the death of Christ, we have died to sin so that in the resurrection of Christ we might live to righteousness under God's government. So when the Lord Jesus died, we know from 1 Peter 3, the righteous died for the unrighteous. Now in the resurrected and ascended Christ, Christ is our righteousness. And because Christ is our righteousness through faith, we are justified by God. That is declared righteous by God 
according to his standard of righteousness. And now we are preparing the wedding garment that consists of righteousnesses, that is, specific expressions of living the spirit and righteousness. And so, as those that are under God's government, we live to righteousness. We're directed by it. We're governed by it. I'm in this situation. If I'm living to righteousness, I won't say what's on the tip of my tongue. I will pay attention through the inner registration in this text I'm about to send. And the inner registration is delete it. Don't send it. This is yourself. Or I'm writing an email of substantial length. I should live to righteousness. Lord, are you at peace with what I'm saying here? And I realize this has to go. That has to be deleted. Lord, you want me to say this. This is not a theory. In all of our relationships, in every aspect of the church life, in our human living, in the work, in the ministry, in the full-time trainings, in the conferences and trainings. We need to live to righteousness. God's government is established upon righteousness. As God's people under his government, we must live a righteous life. No matter what the society says, there are certain things the court has made legal in the United States. We recognize that. People can do that legally, but we can't and we won't, no matter what they say to us. God created us male and female. I'm a man. I've got the body of a man. This is just one feeble illustration. Two, the expression live to righteousness is related to the fulfilling of God's governmental requirements. So our earthly governments require certain things. Every year in California, I have to renew the registration of my car. So I have to live to righteousness as to sit as a driver in California. I have to live to the federal government to pay taxes. Well, we are under God's government and we need to fulfill the requirements of God's righteousness. Remember, whatever God says and does is righteous. And if he decides not to do something that we hope he would do, he is still righteous. So we need to live to righteousness. That is fulfilling whatever God's 
government requires of us. Please don't measure yourself by others, comparing yourself by others, complaining, why does that happen to him and not to me? A a positive thing that I don't get. Or why am I suffering this and others are not? This is the self whining, complaining, pitying itself. We are under directly, every one of us, under the government of God. A and B. We were saved so that we might live rightly under the government of God. That is, in a way that matches the righteous requirements of his government. Remember the coming age can and will be designated as the age of righteousness. Matthew 6.33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Where the kingdom is, righteousness is. We need to be prepared for the great transition from the age of grace to the age of righteousness. And the last point, in Christ's death, we have been separated from sins. And in his resurrection, we have been enlivened so that in our Christian life, we might live spontaneously to righteousness under the government of God. So now in the last minute or two, I'd like to emphasize the expression, live spontaneously. Life is always spontaneously. When we calculate and do something deliberately by self-effort, That's robotic. That's acting. Life is spontaneous. If we we say something, Lord, I consecrate myself to live to righteousness forever, and really we're making a promise that we can't fulfill for the next 24 hours, because we're promising to do something rather than just presenting ourselves, But if we allow Christ, the righteous one, to live in us and under his shepherding and provision learn to live to righteousness spontaneously, we will live to righteousness under the government of God. It will just happen. Spontaneously. This is the real thing. Well, this is the end of the first message. We're not going to continue on the line of the government of God. This is foundational. Then of the many aspects of living Christian life at the end of the present age, we selected a few others. And by the Lord's grace, we'll present them one by one in the remaining three messages. May we bring these matters to the Lord to be enlightened to be humbled, to be supplied, and to live to righteousness under the government of the righteous God. Amen.